This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Lee Hutchison. Hi Lee, how are you? Yeah, a pleasure to be here. The, I think the last time I was on your podcast wasn't as a guest, but it was an answer to a quiz question and it was a quiz question I got right. So it's a, it feels like a privilege and an honour to be on this podcast. Oh, well, that's good. Was that one of the, that, was that the question about which was the episode that gone on the longest? Correct. Yeah. I was sitting yeah. there just like having a lovely walk. I think it might have been like, one of my kind of Christmas day listens or something like that, going for a walk and I was sitting there just screaming at Tony and Clara. It's like, it's me, it's me, it's the <laughs> that episode. And um, I like, gave myself a point right at home for it. Very good. It's a dubious honour of being, you know, partially responsible for one of the longest episodes, but uh, definitely some of those um, episode names ones did come out a bit on the long side. Hopefully um, this one won't be going for any uh, records along those lines, but who knows? Because um, the topic we're looking at today is a kind of curious little one, really. We're looking at the 1977 Dario Argento film Suspiria and what links, if any, it has to the uh, Voyager episode Cold Fire, in which the female caretaker, uh, although she doesn't like to be thought of as a caretaker, is given the name Suspiria. And this is an episode obviously written by Branham Braga, um, who we know has a, a big passion for kind of classic horror movies it should be said when i had him on the podcast and asked him about it he couldn't even remember writing this episode so he wasn't much help but i noticed um a little while later that you had put a thing up on twitter uh sort of comparing shots individual shots from the episode and the movie and sort of trying to draw more uh more parallels between them i suppose so i just thought it'd be interesting to kind of dig into that a little bit more yeah it was one of those ones i think it was one of those like mid-november kind of lockdown feelings i think trek core did their amazing trek on this day and i was i i've recently just kind of come off a star trek voyager rewatch i started rewatching it again along with the delta flyers podcast and then with the way kind of lockdown and covid has gone i've ended up just sort of finishing voyager so the episode was quite fresh in my mind at the time and an episode i I really quite like for sort of how how kind of much it stands out compared to a lot of different different voyager episodes and well the only thing on paper that connects that to the suspiria film is there is a, a creature and a, uh, called suspiria i think there's a lot more kind of going on 
that can be drawn between the films um, and probably not just in a, a visual context, which will probably be a relief for people that are listening on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird one, isn't it? I quite like that episode. I do think it's a very strange episode and I am kind of curious. I'd love to know more about how that episode came to be because uh, it has a teleplay credit to Brandon Braga, but a story credit to someone else. Um, and I'm kind of curious... How much of, you know, often when you have someone sells a story to Star Trek, it may only be one element of it that actually uh, ends up sort of informing the finished episode. It's it's not necessarily that they've worked out kind of all the beats and the whole kind of structure of it and, and everything that's going to happen. Um, so I'm kind of curious because it seems like such a weird choice, given, you know, we met the original caretaker, obviously, in the pilot, and there was this... Um, mentioned there that there was another one that there was a female one you know another entity that would be capable of flinging voyager back to the alpha quadrant which apparently was put in at the request of paramount executives who were anxious that this whole kind of lost in space uh kind of setup for the new show might not work and that they wanted a kind of easy out if they wanted to switch to doing voyager as a kind of you know continuation of next gen basically back in the kind of familiar landscape of star trek so they wanted to have this kind of uh back door sort of inserted in there in the pilot episode to say look that we know there's an easy way back if we can only find it then they don't mention it for like a season and a half or something uh and then they come back with this episode and they they come back to it in such a weird way I, i've always thought it's you know you you would never imagine that the sequel to caretaker was going to be this kind of weird creepy uh horror story yeah it was interesting i kind of i was the same as you I, you always notice especially with a lot of kind of before they sort of decided that they had to get away legally from this sort of like open kind of pitching that kind of star trek was really famous for especially under under michael pillar who was still kind of um prevalent in voyager at the time so i was like anthony williams i, I don't really recognize that name so i kind of turned to to trust the memory alpha and apparently he was an assistant advertising manager at paramount at the time and his only ever other sort of credit on voyager was for for innocence so potentially another sort of horror you know episode in a potential way sort of you know it's a very sort of slight easy episode to watch but it has the concept of people aging backwards that these young children that are about to die um are actually you know elders in a way so yeah it was interesting so i i kind of was thinking like the same as you what what did he bring to this episode? Like, I, I kind of took for granted that they've always got to have it baked in that there's going to be this female caretaker where we'll come along again at some point. I wonder if the idea that he maybe brought was sort of playing with Kess's t- t- um, telepathic powers, the kind of Ocampans on a spaceship. I, I thought it was maybe just something as simple as that, or maybe sort of her and um, Tuvok kind of working on, on these powers together, and then sort of Brandon Braga coming in and then what we kind of know about him especially from your your interview with him about sort of his horror background bringing in a lot of the horror elements and you know really kind of going to town with this kind of original idea and going right it's time to bring back the female caretaker you know let's see what we can kind of do that's an interesting uh way of looking at it yeah i mean i think there was some reference on memory alpha to it being referred to as the kess firebug episode which suggests that that kind of scene where she uh, you know, incinerates the uh, all those plants and so on was a kind of key idea right from the get-go. It does seem weird. I guess one of the things that seems weird to me is that they, that by this point in the show, they didn't have a plan for what they were going to do with this female caretaker, that it took an outside pitch for someone to uh, 
sort of bring them an opportunity to tell that story. It kind of seems because it's such an obvious thread that's been dangling ever since the pilot episode and he's waiting to be picked up. And at the end of this episode, even there's kind of, you know, Janeway says, oh, I'm going to try and talk her around. You know, let's hope we can we can persuade her uh, to help us in the end. But then, of course, we never see her again. So it's this weird... It, it it just strikes me as odd that having put that back door in there right at the beginning, it seems as if they hadn't been thinking what what should we do to kind of pay this off. And it was, you know, it took someone else coming in with a story idea for them to say, oh, okay, right, this is how we're going to kind of handle this one. And again, not even really decide one way or the other, are we closing that door now or are we kind of leaving it open, in, you know, just in case we decide we need to use it in the future. As I kind of touched on, I, I recently just sort of finished rewatching watching Voyager, and I, I find season two in particular like a real kind of standout season for some kind of the the interesting ideas that they kind of go down. I don't think all of them are successful, but I think season one and two are are more darker kind of Voyager episodes um, than sort of what we were to come. You know, I think from sort of season three onwards, it feels very family, very quite safe. Um, not to say that. That doesn't really apply to season two, etc. But there feels more of a, an edge to it. And what when I kind of watched all these like hundred and seventy six odd episodes of kind of Voyager back to back to back for probably the first time since um, it kind of aired, was you know it's all I, I think I've heard it on kind of podcasts where people have talked about it where it's like you know Voyager is the show I watch to to drift off, and they don't mean that in an offensive way. They just mean it's safe, enjoyable, and relaxing, and it. it you know, Voyager rarely surprises, but I find this episode is filled with a lot of odd choices and a lot of odd decisions that I think we, we'll, we'll certainly touch on. But the one thing that surprised me, and I completely forgot about it being a thing, was that the episode opens with a previously on, which is the first one they do in Voyager, but it's in a very different way. It's not the usual Major Barrett where it's like, previously on Star Trek Voyager, now the conclusion. It very much opens with a narration where it's like, you know, her going 10 months ago, the crew of US of, of Voyager was pulled into the Delta Quadrant by an entity known as the Caretaker. When he died, Voyager's best chance of getting home died with him, but he revealed one hopeful possibility. Um, and, the, you know, it had little flashes of some images to Caretaker. And I remember sort of Ronald D. Moore talking about Voyager when he came on and he left. He was like, you know, why not do previously on? Just catch the audience up to date. It immediately sort of drew the parallel when I rewatched Suspiria that that is also a film that opens with a single voiceover where it's like Susie Banyan decided to perfect her ballet studies in the most famous school of dance um, in Europe. She chose the celebrated academy in Freiburg. One day at nine in the morning, she left Kennedy Airport, New York and arrived in Germany at 10.40 p.m. local time. So very much like a simple kind of narration that it could easily be explained sort of in, in dialogue, but both of them choose to give very simple information in their narration about how we got to the point we're at just now. And maybe it's incredibly tenuous and that might, you know, signpost quite a few of my points. 1040 is when she arrives in, in Germany and it's 10 months on from, from <laughs> when Voyager kind of arrives in the the, Alpha, the Delta Quadrant. So it, was, it felt very odd to have that different Major Barrett kind of narration. And she's actually credited at the end of the episode as narrator, not as, you know, computer voice or whatever, which is interesting. Yeah, that did strike me that there's that weird parallel there. And I can't help wondering, was that deliberate? Was it kind of unconsciously deliberate? Because there's a weird aspect as well. In both cases, the narration kind of goes nowhere. You know, it's there at the beginning, 
but it gets dropped and there's no, you know, in, in the movie, there isn't even a kind of bookend at the end or anything. And obviously in the, in the Voyager episode, it is, I think, unique. I think it's the only time. I mean, obviously, normally we, we're kind of used to Major Barrett doing the last time on Star Trek Voyager. And on one level, it performs a similar function to that insofar as it's not, she's not the computer voice. She's not, you know, it's not within the universe of the show. It's, it's acknowledging that this is a TV show and she's, you know, providing that link. But something about it, it is, it, it's odd. It, it's very odd. Though. It's this kind of unique thing. Normally we get a captain's log. We get an, if we get a narration, it's someone who's actually in the story. And in both cases, it's this quite oddly specific, detached third person narration that you get, you know, not from one of the characters, but from this kind of more sort of authorial voice almost. Um, and I think when, you know, when you have that level of detail in the narration at the beginning of Suspiria, yeah, it is quite weird to mention what time she arrived. It is kind of saying, this is a story that I'm telling you, whoever I might be, uh, but you're never going to find out any more about me or, <laughs> you know, why you even, you know, frankly needed that information. I don't think that the, the remake of Suspiria, uh, which I've only watched the first 20 minutes of i have to say uh on your recommendation i noticed does away with the narrator it doesn't seem to uh require that kind of scene setting and i think it's it it is kind of an odd choice in both instances and i, I think there's that is definitely a a parallel that you can't help noticing if you're watching these two things together yeah it's interesting and, and kind of like when i sort of looked at sort of like the and obviously we'll go into kind of more more detail is sort of like i thought right okay Susie Banyan, you know, the lead character in Suspiria and Kess. Kess are our main kind of characters here. And, you know, this is very much their episode and, and their movie. And they're both sort of very vulnerable and coming to kind of an, an alien world, coming from sort of like, you know, America, you know, sort of the bastion of sort of Western civilization to sort of, you know, uh, Freiburg sort of like, you know, very much kind of communist sort of Germany of the, of the seventies, you know, both obviously it must be said amazing scream queens in, in this episode, but you sort of see it that the sort of the coven takes sort of this really special interest in, in Susie when she arrives at the academy because she believes that, she, you know, they believe that, you know, um, Susie can kind of serve them and therefore sort of master Suspirium. And the plot obviously culminates in sort of a bloody climax um, and illuminates sort of that the Coven has been trying to achieve this all along with Susie and the power that, that she has. Very similar to sort of Kess, you know, sort of Tannis is very much this kind of person that takes a very special interest in Kess. And we sort of see that that, well, it's going to be a bit of a more of a longer journey for Kess, that she's someone that sort of develops these powers you know we sort of see the damage that she can do to Tuvok and Tannis in this episode but in sort of future episodes like The Gift we see the positive side and then in Fury for example the sort of darker side of these powers and we can probably see why both sort of Susie and Kess are interesting kind of characters and ones that very much are being kind of groomed by sort of the the kind of protagonist in this episode sorry the antagonist in the episode. Yeah I think there's definitely a kind of parallel they're both very young. I mean, Kess literally is supposed to be two years old, right? But they're both, they, they seem very young. They seem very innocent, kind of naive. Um, Susie Banyan seems like this quite sort of virginal character somehow in this slightly depraved, crazy world. Um, the, the, the other film that, um, a lot of people, I suppose, maybe link with Suspiria is Black Swan. And I think that was the first time I actually heard people talking about the movie Suspiria, which I only watched, you, you know, just this week, uh, for the, benefit of this podcast i have to say it's not um i'd say it's a kind of it's a kind of cult classic if you know what i mean rather than 
necessarily a super popular film. In terms of cast, I've always sort of thought the the more obvious parallel in some ways is Carrie, because you've got the kind of telekinesis and you've got, again, some of the kind of visual language sort of maybe to, to me, maybe evokes uh, Carrie more than than this movie. But I, but I think obviously the fact that they choose to call the female caretaker Suspiria makes us kind of focus in on that as an influence. And there certainly are parallels. I have to say, I, I mean, I'm looking forward to finishing watching the, the remake because my understanding is, and I may be wrong about this, but I get the sense that the remake maybe makes slightly more sense. There's something about the, the, so, the yes. 1977 film. It, it is amazing. I mean, it's like it's a remarkable piece of work. It's very striking. It's quite, it's extremely freaky. It's quite beautiful the way it's shot. Uh, it has terrifying, it almost doesn't do it justice to call it a score. It, the, <laughs> you know, the kind of musical sound of it is quite overwhelming. Um, but it is very sort of, not quite impressionistic, but, you know, it, it's, it has sort of, it, it's more kind of art housey than uh, a sort of mainstream, easy to follow filmmaking, if you know what I mean. I, I certainly felt anyway, having watched it, that I was still slightly baffled a lot of the time as to what was going on. And by the end, I sort of at least got the gist of it, but I'm not sure that I totally understood everything I'd seen. Actually, in a weird way, there is a kind of parallel with Cold Fire that I'm not quite clear what what was really going... What did Suspiria want? Because it's slightly unclear. Do they want... They seem to want Kess. But then earlier on, there's this scene where Suspiria says to the kind of slightly creepy uh, Ocumpen guy, I don't care about the girl, just get me the ship. Now, what does she want Voyager for? She doesn't seem like she needs a ship. Um, so it's all a bit... All of that side of it is never really explained. They sort of... Um, you know, we get that she's kind of evil. And we get that very early on because by calling her that, I mean, even if you didn't know anything about the movie, uh, it's such a sinister sounding name, which I think is one of the main reasons why this the movie takes that as its name. That, you know, when the, the guy's like, oh yeah, we've, we've got a caretaker too. She's called Suspiria. You sort of immediately think, oh, okay, <laughs> this is maybe not the kind of cosy sequel to Caretaker that we might've been expecting. Something kind of a bit nasty and and, you know, unpleasant is going to happen here yeah I, I find it interesting as well when you think of like you know you think of the like as a character called Suspiria we're going to meet the caretaker's female mate but the real focus seems to be on sort of Tannis you know he's he seems to be sort of the real you know antagonist you know he almost is acting and you know when I was kind of watching it back again today, sort of the, his language that he uses, that he is very much grooming Kess. You know, he's highlighting sort of her surroundings, how sterile, lifeless, you know, very much divide and conquer of like, oh, there's nothing here that can be stimulating whatsoever. And she's like, well, you know, there's like 170 people here. Um, and it's like, oh, they're, they mean nothing and so on. And he's very much trying to separate you know, Kess from, from our ship's mates. And, um, you know, even sort of like that temptation with all the powers that, you know, could, could come and so on. Like when he goes like, um, to Kess, Suspiria taught us to develop our psychokinetic skills that had lain dormant for so long. We have abilities, abilities far beyond anything you can imagine. And it reminded me of something that Miss Tanner says in Suspiria, where it's like, I had no idea you were so strong willed. I can see that once you make up your mind about something, nothing will change it for you. My compliments. So it's that almost idea that sort of Kess is someone, you know, sorry, like, and Tuvok obviously follows that up with like, do not underestimate your own potential, Kess. Your mental abilities are rapidly maturing. And um, 
you know, Tannis supports that. Like, yeah, I might be able to help you. No offense to Mr. Tuvok, but I'm more familiar with the Ocomp in mind. So he's very much sort of like, there's that parallel where sort of Susie and Kess are sort of, as he's sort of virginal, sort of untapped, unpoten- you know, so much potential can be can be activated. Very similar to Carrie. Um, and you could sort of get the impression that sort of Tannis is potentially acting on behalf of, he's the sort of the, you know, the, very similar to the Dominion, he's the the Vorta here, you know, the, the friendly face that goes out there to sort of groom Kess, because we certainly see it in, in, in future episodes, how powerful she can become, and, you know, probably even goes beyond someone like Tannis and, and many of the other Ocompans. It's interesting that he's called Tannis, and the, the woman you mentioned in Suspiria is called Mrs. Miss Ta- Miss Tanner or Mrs. Tanner, and and picked up on that. Uh, yeah, he's quite, he's quite a sort of unpleasant character isn't he and yet she has to be sort of taken in by him if you know what i mean i'm going to think to the audience it is clear quite quickly that he's uh a bit shifty in a way there's that great scene early on as well because he has this sort of almost contempt for sort of ordinary non-telekinetic mortals where um neelix is sort of watching their lesson and he tries to kind of ask a question he just sort of puts his hand up as if to say you know shut up get out of here i'm not interested in you uh he has this real definitely this kind of real attitude i mean so in the movie suspiria i feel like you you know am i missing something i sort of didn't get the sense that the main character was is she needed is she needed in this plot in some way or my sense was just that she was kind of asking too many questions and they wanted to get rid of her sort of thing is that I think it's more perhaps in sort of the the sequel that feels like it is kind of clearer that I think it's one of those ones that I think for my kind of interpretation of it, sort of potentially sort of a, a connection where I think it's more Suspiria than, than Coal Fire, but it, it kind of got me thinking about sort of the um, kind of the feminist angles potentially in sort of Cold Fire and kind of Voyager overall, where I kind of thought about I find it's one one of the creative decisions I find odd about this episode is that there are two thousand odd um Ocampan on the you know the station and we only sort of meet kind of one in t- in t- yeah. <laughs> and it's it's one of those ones I sort of thought of it as potentially sort of like a covenant of witches potentially because that's what the school is and that's potentially what this space station is there were, you kind of think about it where he, you know Tannis talks about that they have prolonged their lifespan to almost triple their kind of natural ability sort of thinking about that as potentially sort of a witchcraft kind of element. And it's sort of, when you think about kind of witchcraft, it's got such a history within sort of misogyny, um, you know, kind of men fearing women, sort of accusing women of, of being witches and burning them, but also kind of witches as sort of feminist icons, you know, they're also victims and the victor. And I kind of was thinking about sort of that of like, are these or comping on the space station is this essentially a covenant much kind of like Suspiria where they want to get Kess in part of their community and you know further advance their kind of powers for who knows what end but to get them in there is are they essentially portraying them as as witches in a way and I, I think that's a deep cut that I've only I think I think it's only coming perhaps from my mind but I think there could be something there no, I think it's definitely, it struck me that it's, it's a shame. I mean, I guess it's kind of a, you know, bottle show uh, choice in a way, isn't it? We don't go, we don't even go onto the station. We don't get to see anything of that world. It's kind of tantalizingly close. Um, and yeah, it does sort of seem like they have some kind of community 
that may be quite a sort of sinister community. It's interesting from the point of view of what you say about, you know, witchcraft and the gender politics of that, that the intermediary, you know, as you say, almost like the kind of water is for the dominion, you know, the intermediary here is a man. I mean, they could have had it as a woman um, and sort of really played into that. But I suppose the idea is that Suspiria is the kind of witchy character in a sense, just as in, uh, in the movie Suspiria, there's, I think she's referred to as the Black Queen, isn't she? She's this um, 19th century witch that has kind of been kept alive by all of them and is the kind of force behind everything. Uh, and we only get to see, you, you only really get sort of glimpse at the very end. Um, but again, that sense, I suppose, you know, you mentioned Tannis saying that they've managed to extend their lifespan. Well, obviously, that's also what she's managed to do. She's managed to kind of keep on going um, through, you know, evil, uh, nefarious, which he means. It's an interesting choice, I suppose, even if it is just motivated by saving money, not to show us any of what's going on on that station, because I agree, I think that would be fascinating. That would kind of give us a bit more of a sense of the context here and of, of sort of what's going on. I mean, the movie Suspiria, so much of it is about this kind of strange freaky environment of this ballet school um and the kind of you know even just on a sort of visual level uh you, you know this school is this bright red building i mean the, the color in the film is is sort of spectacular it, it's almost like um the only director i can think of who does anything similar is like almodovar someone like you, you know these films that are kind of saturated with these bright vivid colors and obviously you know in a horror movie you get a lot of you know bright red blood everywhere and all this sort of thing and it but it is very it's it's quite mesmerising the way it's shot. Um, and so much of it is sort of about that place and the place itself being kind of creepy and sinister quite apart from anything that's going on there. You know, there's this big, long red corridor uh, that we keep seeing and this, this, the, the sort of design of it. It's almost another film that it reminded me of a little bit is The Shining, you know, this sort of sense. I mean, different kind of palette, but a similar sense of this kind of really freaky environment um that this girl is kind of uh stuck in somehow and the and the kind of mysteries of it and not knowing quite what's going on there i think it was one of those i think there's definitely an element similar to sort of suspiria where i get the impression sort of that potentially the sort of female caretaker takes potentially energy from these ocompans where i think there was like a line where tanis was like um um, back to the the compensation everyone's waiting for you Kess the connection has been made you're part of us now your future has already begun and I wonder how much that she kind of draws from sort of their their telepathic kind of powers and I think there would have been a really interesting sort of creative decision to be made here naturally 2000 people involves a hell of a lot of extras on the Paramount lot um, but it's one of those things I would love to have seen sort of that connection between sort of Tannis, Kess, the female caretaker and sort of the rest of this I'm just going to call them now a covenant of sort of Ocompans and you know I, I think that there's something to be said sort of when you we sort of are introduced to sort of the the Compans back in sort of caretaker they are sort of a an oppressed group they sort of live underground they've been banished and um, you know they live on a very barren world but have had to make kind of life you know you know make do underneath very kind of similar when you think about sort of like um 
kind of pagan beliefs etc they, they tend to get kind of attracted to sort of marginalized kind of groups and especially kind of women um, and sort of witchcraft tends to provide sort of an independence and power to women that's often denied to them and sort of an oppressive male dominated structure so you think of something like the Kazon and sort of how they kind of kept the, the Ocampans in, in kind of line and sort of had helped them and essentially drove them kind of underground so um you know, by sort of being on the surface and how the caretaker, for example, you know, he is someone that is essentially racked with guilt. You know, he has caused, there's been a, an ecological disaster on this planet and he is forever trying to make it up to them by sort of like sending off this energy to the planet and um, through the kind of pulses and so on, which are, were, were kind of starting to fall apart by the end. So very much you can kind of get the impression maybe once again, sort of the Ocompens as witches, you know, driven underground, sort of oppressed. And the patriarchy in this way is sort of a, a very apologetic and um, male caretaker, especially in the pilot. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, in the movie Suspira, there are hardly any, male characters there's one guy who's a sort of vague love interest who's pretty kind of backgrounded there's a uh, a guy who plays the piano blind character who dies in a kind of freaky horrific way uh but other than that there's not uh, and there's a kind of a couple of experts who susie goes to consult who who kind of explain to her and the audience or at least give her some idea of what's going on talking about this coven of witches and this this idea that this um ballet school was set up by someone who was thought to be a witch you know long ago in the past and so on but it is a very female environment you know it is a sort of almost a kind of matriarchy i suppose within that uh, ballet school all the teachers are women all the students are young women um and that is a definitely a kind of interesting uh element of that environment i suppose and then at the end there is a little boy actually you do see and even at the very end where you kind of see the 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 witches uh kind of meeting and deciding what to do there's this kind of little blonde boy who seems to be hanging around with them who's obviously part of their he's allowed to be there for whatever reason he obviously knows something of what's going on i mean it's also it's it's kind of weird film there's there are just a lot of these sort of slightly freakish characters and you don't even quite know do they have anything to do with the it's, it's almost just sort of sinister set dressing if you know what i mean like there's these kind of slightly scary fat russian women in the kitchen who keep chopping things very intensely with their knives and you know it's this kind of sense of this world that is just um sort of horrifying in every conceivable way somehow this this sort of environment to pull on something you kind of said there and it was something i thought of at the time so obviously i'm not going to spoil um kind of the suspiria remake but i think sort of the original the remake and sort of um, Coal Fire all sort of share sort of a, a connective tissue in terms of sort of the creative process where um, it, I think they go even further really in the Suspiria remake where there is a, a main male character that is also played by Tilda Swinton. There is no sort of magical thing behind it. They have just gone, we'll just get Tilda Swinton to play an old man in addition to sort of Mother Suspiria as well. Okay. Fair enough. The only male characters that are played by males in it are two police officers that are laughed at for their genitals. Very similar trait, you know, in terms of witches, that is something where it's about taking away from a man, a male's manhood and so on. There's, there's points about that. But ultimately, behind the scenes, this is a feminist movie that is written by two men um, with a director as well um, that is male and it's predominantly male behind the scenes similar to the original Suspiria again the same applies to sort of um, 
Coalfire, again, this is Brandon Braga, you know, directed by Cliff Bowl, his first time directing on, on Voyager, one of Trek's prolific, most prolific directors, again, male. And for something like Voyager, for example, you know, it's held up as the first real feminist Star Trek kind of show. Um, you know, a female captain, predominantly female characters, Taurus and Kess. The first Star Trek series co-created by a woman in terms of Jerry Taylor. But ultimately, we see most of these kind of characters. Janeway is very much written predominantly by a man, unless sort of Jerry Taylor, uh, Lisa Klink, for example, and a couple of others, unless they're involved, predominantly directed by by men and so on. So there's always one of these things like it's often that things that get held up as feminist icons and feminist pieces of work about women and feminist stories, they often all come from a male gaze. And I'm, I'm, I think of a line that was in the Suspiria remake where it's like, when you dance a dance, you do it in the image of its creator. Ultimately, Kess, Janeway, female caretaker, all these feminist heroes, Taurus, Seven of Nine, they pretty much come from the pen of, of Brandon Braga, and, um, for example, and, and many of the other sort of prolific Voyager writers, which were, which were largely male writing rooms. Well, there is a kind of interesting uh, tr- tendency there, I suppose, in a way that you do have, I mean, the horror genre as a whole uh, and the many subgenres within it, it is a kind of complicated one because in some ways it often presents uh, young women as victims of generally male violence. I suppose in this film, it's not, uh, you know, it's kind of ultimately all orchestrated by these, these female uh, antagonists, but usually in, you know, sort of slasher movie or something as it's kind of a man uh, committing acts of violence against women, against women. But then, you always have this, you know, the final girl, you have the kind of the the protagonist is a girl, is a woman who kind of survives it. She is the scream queen. She's the kind of one who makes it through. Um, and that's absolutely what you have in Suspiria. I mean, her friend dies in a bizarre, horrific way. Uh, a previous student, I think one of the most shocking kind of set pieces in the movie is at the very beginning when she first arrives and this um, girl who's been kind of trying to leave is is murdered in this kind of weird uh kind of semi supernatural totally horrific uh way and ends up um kind of crashing through a skylight and being hanged you know with blood dripping from the ceiling in this rather grand building uh i mean it's a very um striking set piece and again the kind of music comes in and, and is just bombarding you with this kind of cacophony almost of, of, of scary noises and so on so, so there's a weird I suppose there's a kind of um, weird contradiction there somehow in a lot of kind of horror storytelling it's interesting to me though that we have I mean you mentioned Brannon Braga writing this Brannon Braga obviously a few years later would give us the Borg Queen this very kind of sexy female villain uh, something that I don't think Star Trek had really leaned into before Um it's interesting, I think, you know, we had the caretaker was this crusty old man. It would have been very easy to make Suspiria a sort of vampish, uh, kind of sexualized antagonist. And they don't at all. Instead, they present her as this kind of little girl, which is creepy in its own way. I mean, that kind of taps into another whole element of horror. Um, pedophobia, I think, is, you know, the, the, the kind of fear of, of little children. And Brandon, when I was talking to him, mentioned... Um, one of his favourite horror films is an adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, which is absolutely, uh, you know, leans into that 
idea of the kind of freakiness of little children. And maybe that's another reason why you have this kind of young boy in the original Suspiria, that there's something, he looks quite innocent, but obviously he can't be because of what he's involved in somehow. Um, but I do think it's interesting that the choice there was not made to, uh, to produce a sort of strong, tough, possibly sexualized kind of, you know, we don't really get a sort of anti-Janeway to go up against Janeway. We don't get a kind of, um, we don't get the intendant from DS9. Do you know what I mean? We could, if Suspiria wants to manifest in a corporeal uh, sort of human way, in some ways, the the more, you, you wouldn't be surprised if they went in that direction, but instead they don't. She goes down the route of being this, this sort of uh, little blonde girl who, sometimes speaks with a slightly freakishly old voice <laughs> yeah it was very interesting like when when you kind of when i think back of like before i'd rewatched this episode maybe sort of last year where i thought you know what was sort of the the suspiria character like in in this episode and I, I remember the young kid but essentially she has sort of three different forms in it like you touch on it she has that older hoarse voice very much like that kind of mother suspiria that can that we hear in the film and then we sort of see her sort of in this young child form and then this sort of like purple space you know snake kind of approach which was interesting and you know it, it, i felt like it was one of the sort of more connections I thought was very much on the, you know, between sort of the episode and the film was sort of how sort of the female caretaker seemed to cross over with sort of Madame Blanc, really, you know, Mother Suspiria, where sort of like they're both plotting the downfall of sort of our, our main characters in terms of Kess and the ship. And it's Kess and Susie that discover this, you know, Kess kind of as like Susie sort of like through the whole thing, she takes action, she discovers, and like, she, you know, highlights it, you know, Kess is like, I can feel her presence, she's powerful, turbulent, she's upset, she's angry, and Tannis tries to stop her, and she's like, she wants to destroy the ship, and Marcos, very much like the female caretaker, can change form, and we sort of see her in that climax, sort of become the silhouette character, um, so yeah, it was, it was really interesting to sort of see that connections you know sort of like marcos in sort of like is in her true monster form like the caretaker in her true form is like this snake-like creature she's not human um, and she, as um she's not as human as she presents but she's also not part of the world as we know it sort of either she lives in subspace and she has to be brought out but she has power she control things um and the people sort of around her um sort of very similar to sort of the male kind of caretaker so kind of marcos much like Suspiria is very much a supernatural being. I, I get the sort of the impression from that, and it feels very much sort of the the two are, are very much kind of alike there. Yeah, definitely. I think you can you can see that. I mean, we don't. I don't know about the remake, but certainly in the original, we don't really get to see her pretty much at all. To be honest, she's this kind of uh, invisible figure, and I suppose the same is true of Suspiria in the Star Trek episode. We don't get to see her until you know the final probably like 10 minutes or something, she kind of makes an appearance. And she makes an appearance in this very obviously fake guise of the little girl. You know, we sort of know that's not her true form, in a sense. In the movie, we I think we the first time we see her that I can think of is, is that she's this um, figure that seems to be sort of snoring or sighing. It's something weird. I, and the, the word Suspiria as well, I mean, just to talk about, you know, why... We're talking about why this episode is named Suspiria, obviously in reference to the film, but why the film is named Suspiria is also a kind of slightly complicated question. It, it's thought that to some extent it's 
it's thought that in part it's inspired by Thomas de Quincey's Suspiria de Profundis, uh, which is a kind of, from my understanding, I haven't read it, a sort of slightly trippy, creepy, weird uh, <laughs> work. But it also, the, the, the word Suspiria in Latin can mean something along the lines of sighs or whispers. Uh, I guess the idea of whispers is quite kind of evocative. Sighs, though, I think also ties in with this idea of this this kind of mysterious figure that's not really seen that is making this kind of quite sinister uh it's not exactly snoring it is a kind of labored breathing i suppose and i did notice in the remake of which as i said i've only watched the first few minutes uh it actually starts with another character the protagonist's mother um dying in a kind of like you know with that kind of labored breathing that we maybe associate with that and, and i suppose partly that works because we associate it with death and mortality um and so on and here's this character who should have been dead you know long since but has kind of eked out her life through kind of sinister magical uh means we don't really get any sense of that with tanis in the voyager episode i mean the fact that he's 14 years old and the Ocumper are supposed to die when they're nine or whatever um he seems sort of healthy and kind of ordinary in a sense there's there's no sense that he's kind of um that there's any sort of trade-off to that which in a way might have been quite interesting because certainly marcos in the movie uh has become a sort of you know practically a zombie if you know what i mean do you know what i mean it is is not um we become a sort of horrifying thing in her own right somehow by by keeping on going for so long and i think there is this sense you know what is it that's keeping her up going is she consuming something i mean you mentioned with the Ocumpa. i think there's a sense in that scene where kes burns everything down she sort of burns everything down and then she lies on the floor in this quite sort of ecstatic way and then tanis comes up and says what's he say like how was that for you how did it feel or something there is a kind of slight sort of sexual undertone to it and certainly this sense i think although they don't really talk about it explicitly that she seems to have sort of absorbed i don't think it's just that she's kind of set things on fire and that's kind of exciting it's almost like she's sucked some kind of energy out of it all in burning it at least that's the kind of feeling that i get from it so again that sort of witchy idea of of you know uh sort of absorbing someone's life force or someone's energy or whatever yeah, I think that there's definitely an element of that because I've got it up here where sort of like where, where sort of Susie's looking into like what do witches do and, and it very much ties into sort of how it's presented sort of that destructive kind of element where it's like she's like what do witches do and and, and Frank Dr. Frank Mandel goes um, they're malefic they're, um, malef- uh, they're malefic negative and destructive their knowledge of the art of the occult gives them tremendous powers they can change the course of events in people's lives through harm you don't believe me their goal is to accumulate great personal wealth it can be it can only be achieved by injury to others they can cause suffering sickness and even the death of those for um, for whatever reason offend them why do you have all this interest in the occult so yeah very much that we sort of see kess's powers continue to grow here and not very few of them are presented in positive ways you know apart from being able to warm up a cup of tea you know it's very much like we see you know the infliction that it causes upon sort of Tannis, Tuvok, you know, even sort of Tannis's powers as well. We sort of see him, you know, launching um, 
Neelix across the room, etc. There's none none of these powers that you think, oh, like they're you're going to be really nice or more advanced BZs. They come across as very dark and very powerful, and that's something we'll continue to kind of see as Kess evolves. You know, when we see her leaving the ship, the ship in the gift. You know, she's basically detonating sort of corridors as she goes. The ship is destabilizing. When we see her come back in Fury, for example, you know, she essentially gets Blanatoris killed. You know goes back in time her power corrupts her in a way and i find that very interesting sort of it it doesn't shy away from sort of these powers and her their evolution is potentially very negative and you know we hear about sort of the accompans being potentially kept down sort of in caretaker and these being sort of more powered being given all these skills that they've maybe potentially un, untapped something that sort of essentially comes when their lives get get older i find that really a very interesting decision and very rare for star trek to explore that their their main characters are actually potentially incredibly dangerous yeah, it's true. We do certainly get a sense of that. I mean, uh, yes, so she can basically microwave a cup of tea <laughs> without involving the replicator. Should be said, you know, Americans, as I understand it, don't have kettles. So that, that might be a more valuable skill than, than we would imagine. But when she tries to show it to Tuvok, there's that really quite horrifying scene. I mean, you know, up there with some of those early Voyager episodes, I think, you know, you think of something like Faces, they do have some real kind of, uh, gory nasty horror moments and this episode has a few of them the most obvious probably is that scene where she basically boils Tuvok's blood by accident and his face is kind of uh you know kind of almost melting off of him somehow and he's and he's he's bleeding green blood everywhere and it's kind of expanding you know he looks like his face is about to explode later on she kind of similarly uh she makes Tannis kind of cry bloody tears you know again this sort of quite horrific horror imagery that we get there um i suppose the only positive thing is that the first time we get a sense of his powers he does this trick where he sort of makes all her plants grow and it seems quite benign and and positive again though there's an interesting parallel with the movie suspiria it just occurs to me that the way in the kind of final uh section of that film she kind of gets access to these um to the sort of secret uh, there's a secret door basically that leads to where the witches are up to their witchy things and she accesses it by turning a um a little image of a flower on the wall if you know what i mean because she realizes that this was a kind of clue that she picked up right at the beginning um so again there's this kind of link of, of flowers somehow something that seems quite benign you know the these uh these plants that she's growing seems very um sort of earthy and innocent somehow and he certainly uses that when he says oh this ship's so sterile you know he's kind of leaning into this idea that she you know that she has this interest in this kind of organic uh element and in this kind of um you know something that's not kind of clean and crisp and starfleet and replicated and so on that she's kind of you know getting her hands in the soil or whatever i suppose but um interesting that there's a kind of little parallel there with the the kind of flowers this sort of seemingly innocent flowers then being linked to this quite sinister uh power and definitely you're right by the time we see Kess coming back in fury she is a kind of uh you know a kind of monster she she is basically a witch i suppose at that point isn't she I think the, the the one thing that you 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 really highlight there as well is like this is a very bloody and horror you know horror imagery 
with a lot of blood, which is very rare, but for Star Trek by this point, because I, I was sitting there thinking like, this is 1995, only four years earlier, you have the undiscovered country where they have to essentially give the Klingons pink blood because the idea of sort of having these Klingons floating around and red blood all over the screen was like completely out of the question for Paramount. It was completely unthinkable. In this, you have horrific green blood, Tannis bleeding from the ears, etc. You know, you have a very similar image in, in Suspiria where there's a, an individual hanging. Here you have Torres and another engineer hanging from the rooftops, essentially horizontal, dripping blood onto your lead character's kind of uniform. I, I was really surprised by that kind of culture change four years after sort of the undiscovered country and how much of a, a sticking point that was. I mean, this episode, for example, was rated 12 on, on VHS and um, when it kind of came out here in the UK, which was, which it was becoming a bit more kind of common um, at the time, but you know, it was still incredibly rare um, for that to kind of happen with Star Trek. I think it was the first one for, for Voyager anyway. Um, and, you know, you think of Voyager as well, especially with someone like Brandon Braga, there is a lot of body horror and a lot of horror kind of episodes. You think of like Course Oblivion, Demon, Persistence of Vision, Coda, Scientific Method, Tuvok, The Thaw, uh, Tuvix, The Thaw, uh, Emanations, Faces, Threshold, even sort of the Borg are, are body horror and, you know, in terms of even the assimilation process or even sort of Seven of Nine being kind of stripped down to a human and sort of the gift. It, it was really interesting to sort of examine Coal Fire as a potential pivot in terms of the use of, of blood essentially in, in Star Trek where we take it for granted very much in sort of modern day new Trek in terms of how much blood and gore can be, be used in these episodes. It's true whereas you know traditionally with Star Trek if someone is mortally wounded even it's a phaser blast it's very you know phasers are extremely clean there's no gore there's no kind of none of the horror of it you're right I think that scene where Janeway comes in and the blood drips onto her shoulder it is, you know, it's quite chilling in a way. And I think it's, it's, it, you know, it's a shocking moment and she sells it as well. I mean, you talk about Kess, uh, Kess does a impeccable kind of scream queen scream, uh, in the, the, the earlier scene. She has quite a remarkable scream, actually, Jennifer Lean. Uh, Janeway doesn't quite go as far as screaming, but she has a look of kind of absolute horror as she kind of stares aghast at these, uh, you know, crew up in the, up in the ceiling. And I think there is something quite sinister about this idea. I mean, obviously there's something sinister about the idea of being levitated and being kind of lifted off your feet, which Suspiria then tries to do to Janeway as well. And she's kind of doubled over in pain at the time. Um, but there is also something quite sinister about, I suppose, these things that are above you. I guess because as humans, we're sort of limited to the, to the ground somehow. Um, and in Suspiria, you've got, not only have you got that, that woman hanging, uh, near the beginning at the end, you know, hanging sort of at the end of a really horrific kind of violent assault in a sense, and then crashing down to the ground. But you've also got this really horrific scene where maggots start falling from the ceiling. Um, and the, the, uh, girl Susie, first of all, she, she's got them in her hair. I think she's brushing her hair. And then suddenly there are like thousands and thousands of maggots crawling along the ceiling and just dropping on everyone. There's something quite horrifying, I think, about that sense of these things falling on you and being sort of, um, I don't know, that, 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 that something threatening is above you. You certainly get that, that sense. You definitely get that sense with Janeway, you, you know, kind of looking up in horror and seeing Bellana's there dripping blood on her. Um, much more so than if they were just, I don't know, you know, on the other side of the room or, or in some other sort of impossible, uh, 
situation somehow. I think I, I, I don't know quite what it is, but there is something quite shocking about it. I think it, it just feels ultimately as well like a, a very frustrating ending where it's never to be touched on again. Apparently, the female caretaker, you know, I don't remember this was like it never gets mentioned again until like an off the the cuff remark, sort of in in the Voyager conspiracy. It's it feels like there's a complete kind of missed opportunity there where what did become of sort of Tannis and sort of the the female caretaker. Where did they sort of go? You know, what was their journey? It could be an, a very interesting kind of double act pairing and so on. And you know, especially the fact that they live potentially in subspace. You can have them pop up anywhere, anytime. It's not like the Kazon where we essentially spend two years with them kind of trekking uh, alongside them. You could have them pop up in season seven. You could have them pop up 20,000 light years away, wherever, you know, you've got sort of, you know, it, there, are, there could be a constant and interesting kind of villain. And I just want to know what happened with those those 2,000 other sort of a, a compa. Did, did they vanish as well? Did they get a wish like Tannis? You know, you think of sort of like um, a coven deprived of its leader is like a headless um, cobra, harmless, as they say. And it's a spear. What did become of those 2,000 a compa that have developed these amazing skills, these powers, where they sort of, able to continue on was that the end of this expansion of their life you know who knows i i just felt that was a, a really a shame that that was kind of left behind i would love to know what became of them and how did they cope when you know you know suspiria left did she end up coming back you know who who knows and stuff i, I found it a, a frustrating ending which i think can be the same say said about a lot of voyager episodes some really interesting concepts that could be played with so well but they choose to kind of leave those toys on the the shelf for sort of keeping it sort of episodic tv yeah i think it's true it it, it does feel like an episode that in some ways is kind of calling out for a sequel and they've created a sort of interesting villain even if they haven't totally explains it. I mean, it is a bit unclear. There's this suggestion that both uh, Suspiria and the Acumpa believe that Janeway killed the caretaker rather than that he just died of old age. It, I, I do think it's quite unclear. What is her motive? Does she want the ship for some purpose? Does she want to absorb people? I mean, there's all this talk of going to her subspace realm and so on. It reminds me a little bit of the episode Coda, where there's that kind of uh, creature that's sort of kind of like the devil and, and wants to absorb Janeway and his matrix. You know, there's this kind of sense, you know, are they trying to absorb, do they want to absorb Kess? Do they want to, I, I don't know, who knows what they're up to? Or is it just revenge that the caretaker, uh, that Suspiria, as she says, blames Janeway for the death of her mate and wants to kind of uh, have some kind of vengeance on her. But anyway, all of that could potentially be explored in future episodes and it would be an interesting thing to come back to but you're right they don't i don't know whether any of the novels or comics or anything have touched on this i certainly don't remember seeing anything along those lines and it's kind of tricky because the space station obviously they leave behind them straight away but you're right suspiria herself and in fact tanis because he he sort of calls out to her take me with you and i think the idea is she's taken him into her subspace realm isn't it rather than she's I don't think she's, you know, beamed him back to the space station. So I don't know whether that's somewhere that he can come and go from easily or, or you know, what the kind of future holds there. But also they leave the door open, I suppose, because unlike Susie, who uh, effectively burns the entire building, you know, I mean, basically there's this kind of amazing scene when she kills the witch, uh, all the other witches kind of start looking as if they're sort of suffocating. There's a kind of telekinetic crisis where furniture starts 
flying around the room, uh, chandeliers exploding. Do you know what I mean? Like, and the whole building is on fire by the end of it. Um, which again, you could say, I suppose, is is maybe slightly referenced in the scene where Kess kind of burns down all the plants and so on. This this idea of like everything kind of conflagrating. Um, Janeway doesn't go that route. Janeway uh, is much more magnanimous. She decides to let the uh, let Suspiria go and kind of, you know, sort of turn the other cheek in a way. But it is interesting that insofar as if it, that insofar as Kess is the kind of scream queen in the story, you know, she's this kind of virginal, innocent girl who, uh, as you say, sort of realizes what's going on and fights back. And it is true she fights back against Tannis. But of course, it being Voyager, it's Janeway who has to come and uh, deal with Suspiria uh, with her kind of magic. Um, caretaker busting gun that she you know fires at her and then um obviously she takes over you know it's one of these stories where the the captain sort of takes over at a certain point in order to do the starfleet thing and kind of bring that stamp of moral authority in a way but it does mean that the door is left open again because they don't uh resolve this story um kind of once and for all and they even draw attention to that with Janeway saying you know uh, just as she says in Caretaker, we're going to be looking for this female entity. Here she's sort of saying, you know, we're going to be looking for her again and we'll see if, if you know, we can have a better interaction next time. And I, I do think it's a shame in a way that they didn't, you know, they could at least have sort of closed out a trilogy uh, with a, you know, a third episode that kind of definitively shut the book on this idea. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting as well, like, you know, on, on a kind of final note from, from myself, like, you know, Kess, for example, you know, she does go through sort of the typical kind of horror kind of female lead. You know, so many times, the, you know, the trope is that you look at the, f- the female character, whether she's a sporting character, like someone like Ellen Ripley in Alien, for example, or, you know, sort of the other characters um, in a lot of horror films. You know, she goes through that sort of journey where she is sort of presented as weak, someone that, you know, it's Tuvok that's guiding her, it's Thanos that's guiding her. And ultimately, at the end, she puts them both in their place, you know, intentionally or not, with sort of her powers. And, you know, she reduces both of them to kind of their their knees. And I think Jennifer Lane had a a quote afterward where she was like, it presents Kess with a temptation and then leaves the decision up to the characters whether or not to give in. I feel that this is good because it displays another side of Kess, which is her confidence in being able to choose a path for her life. And I find that quite interesting that you know that is a, a journey that a lot of characters go through in horror you know that we expect it to be the male characters that save the day but ultimately it is the you know the young woman you know the the virginal kind of character the softly spoken blonde you know they're the last one standing ultimately it being voyager and episodic tv everyone's kind of standing at the end but we certainly get a, a, a stronger kind of case for it and one where we're kind of reminded yes these characters can be the teacher whether they're tuvok and tanis but ultimately this pupil will ascend you know eventually outstrip out both of them by by some distance and, and display some amount of power and it's quite striking i mean not everyone loves Kess as a character i have a bit of a soft spot for Kess. i we, we've sort of been fed this line for years that the Voyager writers didn't know what to do with Kess. They couldn't kind of crack her character. They weren't sure what to do with her. Now, in more recent times, it seems like some of the reasons surrounding Jennifer Lean leaving uh, may not have been just about their kind of inability to work out how to write that character. There may have been, you know, more going on there. But 
it just struck me watching this episode. This is what you do with Kess. This is, you, you know, this is whatever you think of the episode. And it is a weird episode. It's a good episode for Kess. Uh, she puts in a great performance. It's a kind of interesting turning point for the character. It's It sort of definitely shows you the potential there to have a really interesting kind of ongoing storyline. I don't really feel they quite that they quite invested enough in it somehow. I mean, you know, by the time she leaves in the gift, yes, there's a kind of through line. I suppose it's a bit like a lot of Voyager continuity. There's a through line, but is it exactly an arc? Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel, I don't really feel that the kind of Kess gaining her powers thing feels entirely satisfying, but it is at least, it's something they can do with her character. And this I'd say is one of the episodes where it really works very well. Yeah. I'm the same. Like I think, Kess, when she left, it, it didn't feel like a huge loss to the series. I mean, especially the fact that another really interesting kind of character came in that they were able to really run with. Um, but it's episodes like this, you think there was something potentially really interesting there that they could have played with. And, um, you know, you certainly saw that in, in 90s TV, you know, especially things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer with your characters like your Willows, your Taras, your Supernaturals. I think that could have been something that could have been potentially really interesting to play with um, in Voyager, where you have a show that is about science you know those decisions what happens when you have very much a spiritual character a supernatural element in there as well we saw that with deep space nine you could do sort of the spiritual characters and have that kind of conflict with you know the federation and science i would have i I think there could have been something something there perhaps not as a, a kind of regular character but i think as a sort of a potentially recurring thing and again as we saw Kess with her supernatural abilities can drop in and out of the the kind of show at will and i think there could have been something much more interesting to do there than just the the fury episode which i feel is a a bit of a betrayal of the the character yeah absolutely i mean it takes them a long time to bring her back for fury and they don't do a great job with it it's interesting you point out the kind of science witchcraft uh contrast and obviously we have voyager headed by janeway who is you know the scientist if you know what i mean she's the kind of um we know that her background is in science before she moved into command there's an interesting decision in this episode i think that the the kind of witchy magic is presented in quite scientific terms insofar as when kess is uh heating up the the tea we see it on a kind of molecular level and the idea is she has to excite the atoms uh and and so on and you you know it's kind of understood scientifically uh and again i guess when she's boiling tuvok's blood it's understood it's not magic it's kind of uh, weird science, if you know what I mean. And so there's obviously a decision to try to represent what you're right is kind of almost coded as witchcraft in a kind of more traditional Star Trek-y scientific framework. Um, and that would have been an interesting kind of thing to play with going forward, I suppose, as well. Um so again, you know, as with a lot of Voyager, maybe something of a missed opportunity there. But either way, I think, you know, I quite enjoy this episode. I, I enjoy it mainly because I think it's a bit of a weird one. I think it's a bit of a kind of, uh, it's full, as you say, of odd choices. Um, I think the movie Suspiria is quite a remarkable and very strange film. I mean, I'd recommend anyone go and uh, definitely go and check it out. I am going to go and check out the remake, um, which seems pretty interesting from what I've seen so far um but yeah i mean 
it's one of these cases it's not it's not one of those ones where there's a very obvious sort of one-to-one parallel between the source material and the star trek adaptation i don't think this is exactly an adaptation of the movie suspiria but the name is there the hints are there and they're definitely a kind of echoes um uh, echoes of those original size you know kind of coming through uh in the star trek storyline whether deliberately consciously or because bran and braga was so sort of suffused with the language of horror that some of that kind of just just came through one way or another yeah i agree and i i highly recommend you know people do check out the original suspiria and the remake is is incredibly interesting i actually caught it at 8 30 in the morning on an imax screen in central london at a film wow. festival which was a <laughs> it which is certainly a mood uh to watch a film like that at that kind of way and i i think it's one of those ones i think you know maybe some of the thoughts what we've thrown around today and so on whether brandon braga or you know the people involved intended them remains very much to be seen but there's certainly something something there you don't have someone like brandon braga with what we know is his background and his interests even if he's forgotten this episode altogether <laughs> you know there's certainly you know he was certainly inspired by suspiria in more than just the the name but i think there there's definitely parallels visually etc that can be played with i think ultimately my own my one disappointment with this episode is the direction i just didn't feel matched the madness potentially of the script and so on i found it quite bland direction from from Cliff Bow, who is a pretty good director, I think they could have done a lot more sort of visually to make it sort of a bit more intense, etc. And, you know, budget obviously held things back a little bit. But I think ultimately Coal Fire, like, you know, stands out because it is an odd episode. It's something different. It's Voyager trying trying to do something bold and interesting. And it certainly stands out, you know, historically in, in terms of Trek about embracing that horror, whether it's kind of the blood element or whether it's the incredibly on the nose reference to something like Suspiria. I think it's 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 a really interesting episode to go back and watch from from start to finish with, you know, that narration to to the ending. It's interesting when you talk about the direction. I mean, I would say Cold Fire has some great moments. Um, I'm not sure if it's ever really more than the sum of those parts, if you know what I mean. And I think you're right. There could have been more tying them together. I, it is tricky. I think Voyager is always trying to do gothic, trying to do horror, try, you know, trying to do these things. And it is up against uh, a challenge because it's such a bright clean you know it's true what tanis says it is quite a sort of clinical environment you know everything is these kind of pale shades of gray and everything and, and quite kind of clean and sterile looking in some ways it's quite hard it's not like it's not the nostromo in alien which is grubby and dark and greasy and you, you know somehow easier to imagine these kind of dark sinister creepy things going on um obviously if you're watching these two things close together you know, the movie Suspiria is very much a director's movie, if you know what I mean. I mean, the story, as I say, I'm not 100% sure if it even makes sense. It's quite opaque. It's quite, it almost doesn't matter. It's one of those films as well. When I was watching it, the dialogue is very hard to make out at times. Um, even though apparently the entire film was, was pretty much was dubbed afterwards. They didn't really use any of the original dialogue. Uh, but it's, it, so it, it, what, but what you're struck by is, this very intense vision of this kind of creepy, crazy, weird, monstrous uh, situation environment and this real kind of directorial flair in the way that it's presented, uh, you know, the the camera moves, the use of colour in particular and the use of sound as well. The Voyager episode, there is one moment where um, 
I think maybe it's when Tuvok's blood is boiling. It's in one of these kind of scary moments where the sound goes quite... It's it's not melodic uh, sort of Star Trek music, if you know what I mean. It, it does it starts gesturing slightly in that direction of, of scary, freaky kind of noises, but nothing to what you get in the you know nineteen seventy seven movie with this um, prog rock band Goblin who provides this just terrifying soundtrack. It's a it's a bit like if you you know if you know like the music from The Exorcist or something like that. There's elements of that only it's like turned up to eleven and very intense and very kind of uh, in your face somehow. Obviously, Star Trek doesn't really do director's cinema uh, in that way. But yeah, I suppose you're right. Maybe they maybe they could have done more. When um, I don't know if any of our listeners listened to um, Garrett Wong and uh, Robert Duncan McNeil's uh, podcast. I know you do, Lee. But when they were discussing uh, the Delta Flyers is the name of the show. It's, it's really good. I definitely recommend checking it out. When they were talking about this episode... Garrett Wong was saying he was a bit disappointed in the scene where the bodies are hung up in the sort of in the rafters in engineering that he I mean I think that scene is quite sort of shocking as it is the fact that they're suspended up there and the fact that you know as we talked about this blood is dripping down but he was kind of saying he thought lying them flat like that uh, slightly undermined the potential the sort of horror potential of it and maybe they should have been upside down or they you know like in Suspiria they should have been hanging as if they were hanged almost that kind of laying them flat maybe that was easier to film but it's it, it takes some of the kind of shock value out of that so you know that from him was a criticism of the director basically saying you haven't haven't quite leaned into the nastiness of this as much as you could have done it and maybe that's true you know maybe Cliff Bowl directed it in a fairly sort of safe Star Trekky way. Maybe these days, you know, with shows like Discovery, the directors have a little bit more freedom. I mean, if you think of that Klingon episode they did in Discovery season two, where it kind of went down a real sort of Game of Thrones path for a while, there's maybe a bit more freedom to slightly uh, go off the wall a bit now and then. Yeah, and I, I just I think like that was the ultimate reality is like you have someone like especially Brandon Braga. I always interpret him as very much a very visual kind of writer as well, um, and I think ultimately he probably had this kind of script, but ultimately just hits the kind of reality of a Star Trek family show. You know, UPN Fridays nine p.m. You know what they probably got away with was probably as. Cl- as on the edge as they could possibly possibly do um so i think there's there's definitely restrictions there but yeah i I just would have liked to have just seen a bit of a a bit more of a visual flair but ultimately that's something that i apply to a lot of 90s star trek so i feel a bit unfair on on, on pulling pool cliff bowl out for this one well lee it's been a pleasure having you back on the show and thank you for getting me to watch this quite extraordinary uh, movie which I might not otherwise have done um, if our listeners want to track you down on social media and argue with you about the relative merits of these two versions of this uh, movie not to mention the Star Trek episode um, let us know let them know where they can find you and also give us an idea of what else you've been working on recently yeah you can find me on Twitter at Lee Hutchison underscore or at Star Trek VHS and you can find me on my own podcast Filibuster which is sort of a general film culture show and the A24 project which looks at the films released by by the American independent distribution company A24 so something very different from Star Trek but every so often the the two worlds cross over so we've discussed uh, recently Green Room which has Patrick Stewart as a Nazi coming up against a musician in the form of of, um, Antonia 
Elchin. So there's always a little bit of Star Trek never too far away. Fantastic. Well, thanks as ever for coming back on the show. We'll make sure to get you back again uh, sometime soon as well. Yeah, I look forward to it. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right.